Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name's Nick, and uh, I serve on the leadership team here at Hope Church. Well, it's been an amazing morning so far, and um, I'm a little speechless, which is never good when you're about to preach, because um, God has basically sort of said my sermon um, through the worship, okay? <laughs> so my job is done. Um, no, it's not. Um, I hopefully can put a bit of meat on the bones um, this morning, kind of from where we've left off in worship, which, which was incredible. And uh, we've been um, looking through the story of Exodus as a church. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, if you have them. If you haven't, there's, I think there's some at the back uh, on the table, or it'll be coming up on the screen um, in a minute. And we're going to be covering six chapters of Exodus this morning. Okay, so don't worry, I'm not going to read all six chapters. Um, but uh, we've got a lot to cover this morning, but we've got some incredible stories of faith that I want to share with you. So if you'd like to put your finger in Exodus 7, and uh, we'll, we're going to start from there in a minute. So we've been looking at the story of Exodus. Now, Exodus is the story of how God rescued his people from Egypt. And uh, God's people turned up in Egypt through the man of Joseph, and that's another story in Genesis which you can have a read for yourselves. And they multiplied, and they growed, and they did well for themselves. And uh, because of that, they became a threat to the Egyptians. And uh, like uh, the Egyptians did this with many nations in their midst and around them, they enslaved them. And they used the Israelites to help them build their big royal palaces and temples, some of which you can see still today in, ancient, in modern day Egypt. And uh, God's people cried out to God, and uh, God heard their cry. And they, were, they cried out in their slavery, and God heard their cry and decided to rescue them. And going alongside that cry out to God uh, was a time of great oppression and uh, during that time, a man called Moses was born to an Israelite family, to a Hebrew family. And um, Moses, um, as a baby, was in great danger because at the time of his birth, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, said, I want, these Egyptians are such a threat, sorry, these Israelites are such a threat, I'm going to kill all of their firstborn babies. And so Moses' parents were very quick and they thought, right, we're going to hide him. And they hid him in a basket in the bulrushes on the River Nile. And uh, as it happened, uh, Mo uh, getting all my names bottled up, Pharaoh's daughter um, was bathing and she saw Moses in the basket. And so this man, Moses, this child Moses, grew up um, in the Egyptian royal court. He, he was an Israelite, but he understood the Egyptian ways. And uh, a few years on passed, and Moses was walking along one day, no doubt in his royal robes and all the rest of it, and uh, he saw an Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and something riled up inside him. His blood boiled, and he intervened, and he killed the um, Egyptian slave master. And because of that, he had to exile. He had to exile to a place called Midian, and he lived there for many years. 
And we heard from Tom a few weeks ago how God called Moses back to Egypt. He was the perfect man for the job. He understood Egypt, but he was also one of God's people. And God called him back to Egypt to rescue God's people, to help rescue God's people. And Tim, last week, picked up on the story. So where we were just on the cusp of God's people being set free, the Egyptians, they started to ramp it up a bit. And they increased the quotas of the Israelites. And they said, we want more bricks, but we're going to give you less resources. In fact, you've got to find your resources yourself. And Tim covered the whole area of, well, what do we do in crisis? How do we handle crisis? How do we respond to God in crisis? And today, I'm going to pick up the story from there. And we're going to be looking at 10 plagues. 10 plagues that God brought upon Egypt. On one hand, to show them his power, but on the other hand, to persuade Pharaoh to to listen and let his people go. And we're also going to be looking at probably one of the most important events in the Old Testament, if not, well, it's not the Bible, I'll come back to that in a minute. In the Old Testament, we're going to be looking at the whole thing of the Passover, and what that is and what that means, and I'll unpick that a bit as well. Okay, so let's start by reading from Exodus 7, verse 8 to 13. Okay, here we go. So then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So when I was 16, 17 years old, I used to play quite a lot of badminton. Believe it or not, I had my front tooth knocked out playing badminton, okay? But I was quite good, all right? I just want to add, you know. And we used to play, doesn't sound that I was very good, does it? But I was, honestly. And... uh, we used to play week in, week out. My friends and I, friends and I, I had a good friend who used to play with quite regularly. And we thought, you know, we're okay at this. And one day, my friend, he came along and he had brought a Malaysian student that he had got to know. And he said, he said um, you know, this is so-and-so, I can't remember his name now. He said, you know, he's going to come and play badminton with us. And uh, it's like, fine, great. Little did we know that badminton is the most popular sport in Malaysia, okay? And so the Malaysian chap, he said to us, well, tell you what, why don't I stand in this court and you two go over that court and I'll play against you both? And so we were like, you know, what is this bloke on? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Okay, right. If he thinks he's going to beat us both, that's absolutely fine. But we'll we'll let him think that, okay? So we went over to the other side and we started the game. And basically, he completely annihilated us. 
he completely humiliated us. He literally stood in the middle of his court and with the power of his shots, with the accuracy of his shots, he didn't even really move from the spot. He didn't break a sweat. And my friend and I were literally diving around, tripping each other up, rolling on the floor, struggling to get the shuttlecock over the net. It was a disaster zone. And we were completely humiliated. We were completely taken apart, dismantled. We didn't know where to turn. We didn't know what to do. And in the same way, this is what God did to the Egyptians' so-called gods. There was nothing random about what God did through the ten plagues. And we're going to go through them in a minute. The plagues God sent were meant to show that he is the only true God, and that he was mightier than any Egyptian God. And the humiliation started in this story that we've just read. So the God protecting the Egyptian royal household, the palace, was a God called Wadjit. Okay, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but sorry, but that's what I pronounce it as. And Wadjit was the cobra goddess, was the snake goddess. So when Aaron's staff swallowed up the Egyptians' staffs, snakes' staffs, the point was not missed to, the Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's household. And it went on and on and on, and the humiliation carried on. Plague one, the river Nile turned to blood. And the Egyptians maybe were saying, well, so where's Happy, the hippopotamus goddess of the Nile? Where is she? We need this water. Where is she? How is she? She hasn't rescued us. And then plague two, the plague of frogs. Where was Hecate, the god of the frogs? Well, God showed the Egyptian who really was the lord of the frogs. And then plague three, where gnats appeared from dust. Only the true god can create life from dust. Not the Egyptian creator god, Amun. What about plague four, the plague of insects? Where was Kepri, the beetle god, when you needed him? What about Plague 5, the death of livestock? There was nothing that Apis and Hathor, the so-called boar and cow gods, could do to help with the livestock. What about Plague 6, the plague of boils? People started to come out with boils. There was nothing that Isis, the healing goddess, could do to help the Egyptians. What about Plague 7 and 8, hails of locusts and, sorry, hail when locusts came and destroyed the Egyptian crops? So where was Set, the storm god? Where was um, Min, the fertility goddess? Where was Osiris, the resurrection and harvest god, when that was going on? Plague 9, 72 hours of darkness. And this gave the Egyptians 72 hours of sitting there thinking, I wonder where Amun-Ra, the sun god, is at this time when we need him. And then, of course, the plague, plague 10, the final and most devastating plague, which we're going to look at in more detail later. The loss of every firstborn son of every household not covered by the blood of a pure male lamb. Where was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was one of their gods. Where was their god king Pharaoh when his firstborn son died? Where was Anubis, the death god? Where was Osiris, the resurrection god, during this terrible event? The Egyptian gods let them completely down. And this was total defeat. This was total 
humiliation. The true and only living God, Yahweh, the creator of all things. We've been hearing about his majesty, his power over these past few weeks. He showed his hand, didn't he? He showed his power, he showed his might, and the Egyptian gods had no answer to any of this. And as I was kind of thinking about this story, I I take three things from this. I take that this is our God that we worship this morning. As we've been worshipping here, praising him, this is our God. He is mightier, he is more powerful, he is more magnificent than any other so-called God or power. He's in total control. Not just of nature, but of humans, of history, of rulers, of authorities. And I find this really encouraging, particularly encouraging at this time, as we enter into this time as a church of multiplication and growth and thinking about moving into new areas. And the task is massive, isn't it? It's huge. But this is our God. This is our God whom we serve this morning. He can do immeasurably more than we can imagine. The second thing I take from it is that God loves us, fights for us, and protects us. Paul writes in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? There are some beautiful verses in Exodus 4, verse 22, 23, where God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. In that verse, we see God's heart for his people, don't we? His beloved. This is personal. This is personal. These people are mine. They are precious to me. They are my firstborn children. I love them. I will do what it takes to rescue and save them. And in Jesus this morning, as new covenant people, we, that is God's heart for us. That's God's heart for us as a church, as you as individuals. You are precious to him. It's as if you're his firstborn. He loves you. And he will do what it takes to rescue, to help you, to protect you, to go with you, to save you. And the third thing is that I think, let's not get beguiled, let's not get pulled away, let's not get sucked into by the gods of this age. You know, we can often look back on the Egyptians, and I watch history programs, and I, you know, I like history, and some of these kind of very intelligent people, they kind of mock and they laugh, and they, you know, it's kind of like, of course they believe this stuff because it's superstition and all the rest of it. But actually, are we any different today as humans, really? You know, the Egyptian gods may have been more obvious, but we have many gods, don't we, in our nation, in our lives sometimes. Maybe money, maybe ambition, maybe spirituality, maybe self, maybe individualism, maybe philosophies, maybe ideas, fame, identity, leisure, education. And some of these things aren't bad, necessarily. I'm not saying that. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But none of these things will ultimately bring lasting peace, will ultimately bring lasting hope or lasting worth to our lives. And when tested, when exposed for what they are, 
they will leave us wanting. And that is my own experience. We all have our own experiences. You know, I've lived in the countryside. I've lived in the town. I've lived in the city. I've lived in a Catholic country, in a Muslim country, in a Hindu country. I've lived in the UK. I've had a mortgage. I've rented. I've had academic failure. I've had academic success. I've travelled, travelled the world. I worked for British Airways, travelled the world. These are just my own things. And I can honestly say to you, nothing, nothing satisfies, nothing, no other God that this world offers up brings the hope, brings the life, brings the certainty that Jesus brings. And in Jesus, the true and living God, who is the Lord of Lords, who is the King of Kings, we find true peace. We find identity, we find provision, we find purpose, we find rest. Jesus trumps the God of our age, of our current culture. And I, I was thinking about this, and as Maurice brought that word this morning, you know, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Is that our prayer? Is that your prayer? Is that my prayer this morning? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we will not be distracted by the gods of this world. Because I take from this also that God, our God, will not be stopped. His kingdom will succeed. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have promises over us as a church. You have promises over you as individuals. And God will succeed with those things. He will see them through. And no God, no uh, you know, Egyptian, no king, no ruler, no principality, no power, nothing that comes up against God's way, God's word will succeed because God is in control. God will have his way. God will succeed and he will take you with him because he loves you. You are his beloved. You are his firstborn. And the question is, is will you walk in his way? Will you say, as for me, and my house, I will serve the Lord. Let's look at the next part of the story, Exodus 12. If you'd like to turn to that. And we're going to look at Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13, and look at the whole story of the Passover. Here we go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, 
but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner your sandals sorry, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, because I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So this was the tenth and final devastating plague that was to temporarily, interestingly, um, make Pharaoh relent and let his people, let the Israelites go. And uh, I've taken four foundational truths from this story that I want to kind of talk about this morning. And the first one is that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. The Israelites were saved by the, shedding of a, of a blood, of, by the shedding of the blood of a lamb. And like the Israelites in the story, we were slaves. Ephesians 2 says we were slaves. We were hopeless. We were dead in our transgressions. We were objects of God's wrath. We had no hope. There was nothing we could do. Our good works were not good enough. They were like filthy, they're like filthy rags. They are not good enough. We can't make ourselves right with God in our own strength. We were dead. You can't revive a dead body. If it's dead, it's dead. If you're in slavery, you have no rights. You have no freedom, no way out. Someone has to set you free. We needed help. Us as humans needed help. And like the story of Exodus, God instigated a rescue plan. Like the story of Exodus, God reached down into our mess. God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us. Like the story of Exodus, where the angel of death sweeps in and punishes those rebelling against God. Our sin, our rebellion, cannot go unpunished. God is a just God. He needs to punish sin. I was talking to someone today, sorry, this week at work, who feels that there's a great injustice happening to them. And it's hard because you think, I I don't, you've done all you can and I don't know what else I can do for you. And in situations like that, maybe you feel that there's injustice going on and you think, God, what is going on? Well, God will not let anything go unpunished. God will punish sin in other people's lives, but also in our lives. And like the story of Exodus, God sent Jesus to rescue us. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, was killed in our place. Like the story of Exodus, those covered by the blood of Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus will be saved from spiritual death, will be saved from the hold of sin on their lives, and will become part of God's family. Like the story of Exodus, Jesus escaped death. He exodus from death. He resurrected and he is now ascended on high. 
He is seated in all authority, in all power, over sin, over death, over all spiritual powers, over all earthly powers. And if we put our faith in Jesus this morning, we escape, we exodus, we can exodus from sin and death in our lives. And we start a journey of faith with Jesus, our King, guiding us, caring for us, providing for us, and freeing us from our sin, from our past lives. If you're here this morning and you're searching for God, this is good news for you because you can find God. You can find hope. You can find freedom from your sin. You can find, you can find mercy from God. If you're feeling guilty this morning, condemned, there is freedom from that in Jesus. When I became a Christian, I remember one of the words I kept on saying was, I've got a burden. I've got a burden. It's weighing me down. This sin is weighing me down. And as I came to Jesus, that burden was lifted off me. You can know that this morning. God looks on us if we, are, if we put our faith in Jesus and God sees Jesus' righteousness. Jesus, God sees the blood of Jesus covering us and our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is taken away. We are set free from our condemnation. There is hope for all of us this morning. The second thing is that God saved a community. In Exodus, God saved a people, a community, his people. And in Jesus, God saves us as individuals so that we may live in a community, in his family, part of his church, which the Bible describes as the body of Christ. God exists in community, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God instituted man and woman, community. Got through man and woman, he, he started family. God created community in the family. God created a new people. He chose a people for himself. We've been reading about them in Exodus, a community. And in the new covenant, in Jesus, we are now a new community. God saves us for community. John Wesley, the 18th century preacher, he said that the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Like the Exodus, when we start our journey of faith as an individual, we enter into a community, into the church, into the body of Christ through the church. And as we community as a church, as we commune as a church, we have different functions, but we're all needed. We lay our lives down for each other. We spur each other on. We encourage each other. We're called to teach and admonish each other. We're, we help the weak. We're called to be patient with each other. We're called to be humble and gentle. We're called to forgive each other. We carry each other's burdens. We do nothing out of selfish ambition. We're called to be examples to each other. And God calls us into community for purpose. He saves us into this community for our own good, to strengthen us, to grow us, to mature us, to prepare us for the return of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honoured, we all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are individuals. We have our own characters. We have our own quirks. We have our own gifts. We're not robots. We're not drones. But we are saved 
as individuals in a beautiful community, the church. And you might be thinking, yeah, but it's hard. It's really hard sometimes. That person really winds me up. Well, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace doesn't just save us. He continually gives us his grace and the power and the strength through his spirit to love each other in this community of the church. The third thing is that we're called to pilgrimage. As the Israelites started their journey of faith and they ate the Passover meal, they were told to dress for travel. Put on your sandals, get your staff, get your cloak ready. They were told to be ready to travel light. We've moved house several times. I'm sure many of us have. And it's a great time for decluttering, isn't it? When you go on holiday, maybe I remember as a joke in our family, I'm going to say something about my dad now. He's down there. He used to get everything out on the bed that he was going to put in the case. Handkerchiefs, deodorant, towels, shirts. So he knew everything was there. You prepare for a, you prepare for a holiday, don't you? I was joking with a, 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 a friend of mine in the church. When you go on holiday, it's the only time that you might walk around in your, in your swimming trunks. Every other time, we're trying to cover up ourselves and not expose our bodies. And uh, so you get ready for it. You try and lose a bit of weight. You know, you try and spend a few months kind of eating sensibly and doing exercise. We get ready for journeys. We get ready for travel. We get ready for change, don't we? And like the story of Exodus, we are called on a journey of faith. We're called to have a mindset of pilgrimage. We're called to get ready. We've been called out of slavery into new life on a new journey to our promised land, to heaven, to eternity with Jesus. We're called to pilgrimage. We're called to travel light, not to weigh ourselves down with the gods of this age as we've just been hearing about. They're not worth it. We're, not, we're called to travel light. We're called not to be distracted by the treasure, treasures of this world that rust and, and moss will destroy. We now tra- travel towards, as Hebrews puts it, a better country that is a heavenly one. Paul writes, our citizenship is now in heaven. We don't belong here. Let that encourage you. Let that encourage you that if, if, it is really, if, you're, if it's difficult at the moment, this is not your home. But also let it stir you on. Let it spur you on to think, you know what? I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to be pulled away by things of this world. 20 years ago, when we were first married, we were starting to have children um, we moved into our first house. Corrie got her job, first job teaching. I got my first job in HR. And some of this, if we're honest, became a real distraction to us. And one evening we went to a prayer meeting and the respected elder said to us, don't get flabby. Now he might have been talking about our physical bodies, but I don't think he was. He was talking about us spiritually He said, don't get flabby. Use the gifts that God has given you. Don't be distracted by unimportant things. And I just feel that God wants to say that to some of us this morning. Don't get flabby. It's not pointing the finger. It's not condemning. Out of his love, come on, you're my firstborn. I love you. 
Come on, I love you. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. I bought you with a price. I've called you to great things for me. I've given you gifts. I've given you dreams. I've whispered things to you. Don't be distracted. Don't get flabby. What does pilgrimage mean? Well, for some of us, it might mean literally going. For some of us, it might mean staying. What it really means is a heart attitude. Whether we go or stay, let's be honest with ourselves. What's behind our priorities? What's behind our ambitions? What's behind our decisions? Why are we doing something? Why do we spend the time we spend doing it? And the fourth thing is that we've been made differently. As people on pilgrimage, we are saved to be different. Egypt was actually a pioneer in the use of yeast. They pioneered it in bread, they pioneered it in beer making. And so when God said to them, make unleavened bread, make bread without yeast, he wasn't just giving practical help to say, make some quick bread. He was actually saying, take Egypt out of you. And this is what God has done with us. He wants to take Egypt. He wants to take this world out of us. And we were, again, hearing about this this morning in the worship from Paul and Emma. The Spirit of God is upon us so that we will become oaks of righteousness. And in saving us, we are now new creations in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're different. We're called to be different so that people will look at us and glorify God. Peter says in the New Testament, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's that pilgrimage again, isn't it? We don't belong here. We're moving on. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God." on the day of visitation. Now, growing up, my, my mum and dad led a church. I used to spend most of my time up in my bedroom, staying away from everyone coming into our house. And, uh, and I remember, we, I always used to know when dawn had come to our house. Okay, I was upstairs, and you could tell, because she had the strongest perfume you've ever smelt in the world. And uh, even when she had gone, two hours, three hours later, I used to venture downstairs and say, has Dawn been here? <laughs> and a few months ago, Valter Vertigal, I think that's how you say it, came to speak to us on the eve of him and his family moving to the Netherlands to plant a church. And he preached on a verse from Corinthians. He said, this is 1 Corinthians 2 verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God." among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And I've pinned that to my notice board at work, at, uh, on my desk. I work from home. So whenever I'm on an MS Teams call, sitting at my desk, I remember I am the aroma of Christ. I am the aroma of Christ. We read a story, I was reading a story with the kids the other day, where there was this house in the street that was absolutely stunk. And the neighbours started to think, what's going on? And so they rang the RSPCA. The RSPCA got entry. And inside the house were 400 animals. And so they obviously rescued them all. And it just made me think. It made me think, this is the work that God has done on us. He didn't 
save us and then paint the outside, hoping that the smell would go. He took the dirt from inside and removed it. We have now become the aroma of Christ to God. God looks at us and smells Jesus. And so the world looks at us and smells Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? We are now ambassadors. We are now representatives of Christ. Let's remember that. God has taken the yeast out of us. We are now different. We're called to be different. Let's remember the work that God has done in us. And let's live up to that. As Peter writes, let's abstain from sin. Let's keep our conduct honourable. Band, if you'd like to come up, and we're going to end there. And we're going to end this morning by taking communion. If you'd like to stand, and you should have some pots in front of you. And uh, can I ask you, we were, I was, we were joking about this at the elders meeting a few um, times ago. It takes about half an hour to open those pots, doesn't it? Don't be distracted by those pots, okay? <laughs> Let's just think about what we've been looking at this morning. Let's just think about what God has been speaking to us about this morning in the worship. God is, has filled us with his spirit. We are oaks of righteousness. God has taken the yeast out of us. God has saved us. We are covered by Jesus' righteousness to be the aroma of Christ in this world. Let's remember that. And all this has been made possible by what Jesus did on the cross. John Bloom, a theologian, he wrote this. He said, Old Testament Israel looked back to the Exodus through the Passover meal, through that meal we've just read about. New Testament Israel, that's us, looks back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he encourages us to examine ourselves this morning. And the band are just going to play some music and we're going to sing a song together. And what he means by that is that this is a time, isn't it, to have a heart check this morning. You know, do you need to resolve anything with God? Do you need to resolve anything with someone in this room, maybe? Maybe when you get home, do you need to send a text message or write a letter or go around to their house, sort something out? Maybe there's something that we've talked about this morning that has challenged you into action. Now, are you becoming flabby, maybe? Do you need to show grace and forgiveness to someone? Are you behaving as your old self or are you being the aroma of Christ in your workplace? Do you need to stand in truth this morning? In the truth that our God is bigger than any God that this world can put up in front of him. He can destroy any God. He is bigger than any situation that we face. Or maybe you need to, maybe you think, you know what, I want to know this Jesus. And I want to take that step. I want to know him. I want to put my faith in him. Well, this is a great opportunity this morning. If that's you, talk to the person next to you, the person that you've come with, or one of the leaders at the front here. Don't waste this opportunity. So I'm going to read something from Matthew, where Jesus took the first communion. And, uh, and as I do that, we're going to sing a song 
And let's share communion together. Let's, in groups of twos and threes, let's pray together. Let's thank Jesus for what he's done, for the journey he's taking us on and the journey he's taking us to heaven. And it's incredible, isn't it? And let's thank God for what he's doing in our lives. And if you feel you need to respond, please do that. Okay. So Jesus said, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's thank Jesus for what he's done for us.